Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Harry Hawke is nervous. The theatre is packed. A lively crowd has turned up to fill out the 2,000-seat venue, and they're responding well to the material. Each gag is met with gales of laughter and enthusiastic thigh slaps. But despite this, there's one audience member Hawke can't stop focusing on. At regular intervals, his eyes dart up and to the left. Because just 12 feet away should sit the most powerful man in the country, perhaps even in the world. But Abraham Lincoln is late. As the carriage pulls up outside the theatre with the First Lady Mary and their guests, Clara Harris and her fiancé, Major Henry Rathbone, the clock reads 20 minutes to nine. Of course, the cast and fellow attendees knew to expect the 16th President of the United States his attendance tonight has been highly publicized. As the president and his companions are led quietly to their seats, heads begin to turn, quickly followed by excited chatter and pointing fingers. With his six-foot-four frame and distinctive facial hair, Lincoln isn't exactly unobtrusive. The play halts as the audience breaks into applause for the beloved politician from Kentucky. The orchestra begins a rendition of Hail to the Chief, a piece of music which often goes hand in hand with public presidential appearances. The jubilant atmosphere amongst the crowd isn't simply born of admiration, but also relief. Less than a week earlier, the Civil War had ended. Four years of bitter, bloody conflict, which had claimed the lives of over half a million people, had concluded with the surrender of General Robert E. Lee and the Confederate forces at the Battle of Appomattox Courthouse. There is a sense that now, after years of hardship, the American people, or those aligned with the victorious Union forces at least, have reason to be optimistic. The Lincolns take their seats. The crowd settles. And the play carries on. At 10.15 p.m., Alone on the stage, Harry Hawke delivers one of the play's biggest laugh lines. Don't know the manners of good society, eh? Well, I guess I know enough to turn you inside out, old gal, you suckdologizing old man-trap. As the audience erupts, the sound of a single gunshot rings out. Laughter from the delivered line makes way for screams and the murmur of confusion. 
What was happening? Was this part of the play? Instinctively, Harry turns to face the presidential box and sees smoke curling up around the velvet curtains. Seconds later, a male figure appears at the balcony. In his hand is a large, bloodied blade. The man jumps from the box, crashing onto the stage 12 feet below. And as he struggles to his feet, Hawk gets a good look at him. To his utter bewilderment, the knife-wielding man is someone he knows. A fellow actor. And less than 12 hours later, the rest of the country will know his name too. John Wilkes Booth. The man who assassinated the President of the United States. From What's the Story Sounds, you're listening to Crosshairs. In each episode, you'll be immersed in some of the most significant and shocking assassination attempts and successes in human history. From meticulously planned hits to killings gone wrong and the moments in time which led to murder. So train your ears and listen as we walk you towards the moment where victim and assassin collide. This is Crosshairs, Episode 5, Abraham Lincoln. At around midday on April the 14th, 1865, a 26-year-old John Wilkes Booth arrived at the Ford Theatre on 10th Street to collect his mail. Elegantly dressed in a dark suit, tall silk hat and carrying a cane, Booth has a presence that is undeniable. At five foot eight inches, he isn't tall, but his lean, muscular frame and striking good looks, coupled with an innate understanding of his own physicality, means he's rapidly ascended the ladder of the American theatre scene to become one of its brightest stars by his early 20s. Today, however, his acting career is the last thing on his mind. It has been less than a week since the Confederate surrender at Appomattox, an event that in many people's eyes marked the end of the Civil War. And Booth is bitter. The war was the result of decades of simmering tensions between the northern and southern states, who clashed over states' rights, westward expansion and slavery. During the mid-19th century, the United States underwent a period of extraordinary growth that saw the rise of manufacturing and industry in the North on an enormous scale. The southern states lagged behind on this front, however, relying on the labor of black slaves to carry out the large-scale farming of cotton and tobacco. Abolitionists, those who believed in outlawing slavery, began to campaign heavily against the practice, and the movement gathered serious momentum in the 1850s Anti-slavery northerners began liberating slaves from southern plantations using a network of safe houses that came to be known as the Underground Railroad. And this certainly didn't help the souring relationship between the North and South. The election of Abraham Lincoln, a man morally opposed to slavery in November 1860, was the straw that broke the camel's back. It resulted in several southern states 
South Carolina, Mississippi, Florida, Alabama, Georgia, and Louisiana, seceding from the Union and forming the Confederate States of America. On April 12, 1861, the first shots of the American Civil War were fired at Fort Sumter in Southern Carolina. United States Army forces had occupied the fort after the state's secession. Confederate troops surrounded the fort in response, demanding the United States Army vacate the strategically important base, resulting in a tense standoff. At 4.30 a.m. on April the 12th, Confederate troops began shelling. Less than 48 hours later, the Union troops inside the fort surrendered. The first victory of the war went to the Confederates. Whilst bombs were raining down on Fort Sumter, John Wilkes Booth was lighting up stages in New York. Born in Bel Air, Maryland, in the mid-Atlantic region of the United States, John, the ninth of ten children, was raised on a farm purchased by his parents, Junius Brutus and Mary Ann. John spent much of his childhood on horseback, exploring the 150 acres on which his family had made their home a small log cabin surrounded by beech and walnut trees. Originally from England, Booth's father, Junius, was a celebrated stage actor who made his name with his performance in the lead role of William Shakespeare's Richard III. When he and Mary Ann met in London and fell in love, Junius was already married to a woman named Adelaide who had given birth to his child. So the illegitimate couple relocated to the United States where they had to pretend they were legally wed, a lie they supported with a counterfeit marriage certificate. Junius was earning a good living as an actor, but between the money he sent home to his family in the UK and his severe drinking problem, there often wasn't much left for Mary Ann to feed her ten young children. Junius spent much of the year on tour with various productions, often missing the births of his offspring as well as significant chunks of their childhoods. On one occasion, he returned home to find that his six-year-old daughter, Mary, had passed away just a week before. Grief-stricken, he ordered a handyman to exhume her and attempted unsuccessfully to resuscitate his daughter. Three more of John's siblings would die before reaching adulthood. As John entered his teenage years, he started drinking, his behavior quickly deteriorated, and before long, he was getting into regular fistfights. In 1854, a few years after the death of his father, John was arrested for attacking a saddlemaker who had insulted his mother. Rudderless, lost, he needed to make a change, and decided that he wanted to follow in his father's footsteps and pursue acting. His career got off to a rocky start with a performance as the Earl of Richmond in Shakespeare's Richard III at the Charles Street Theatre in Baltimore. John had gotten the gig through a friend, and as he took to the stage in the drab, second-rate venue, he was greeted by an expectant crowd. The son of the renowned Junius Booth in the play that had made his father a star, no less. 
John's performance went down like a lead balloon. The audience even hissed at the 17-year-old. It was a baptism of fire. But Booth took it on the chin. Not wanting the burden of his father's legacy, nor wanting to tarnish the family name any further, he joined up with a theatre troupe in Philadelphia, calling himself J.B. Wilkes. For six months, he toiled away as a background actor across 165 wordless performances. And when he finally got a break, a small 12-line part in Lucretia Borgia, he bungled it. He was rescued by his older brother Edwin, who'd found some success of his own as an actor, and took John under his wing, getting him into the company at the Marshall Theatre in Richmond, Virginia. John took the bit between his teeth. Within the space of five years, he went from walk-on parts earning a few bucks a week to a leading man pulling in thousands of dollars annually. His trajectory was nothing less than stratospheric. He became a nationally recognized star, one who reportedly had fans rip the clothes from his body in an effort to get near him. Booth reveled in his newfound celebrity. He dressed himself in the finest clothes money could buy, wined and dined in the country's top restaurants, and most of all, luxuriated in the favor of his admirers, his female fans especially. Booth's brand of stardom was a curious one. He was known more for his good looks and his high-energy performances, but his acting prowess was questionable with critics, particularly in the early stages of his career, deeming it uneven at best. Nevertheless, Booth threw himself both metaphorically and literally into every one of his roles. He was incredibly athletic and could jump over a five-foot-high piece of scenery with ease. He was also a master of the art of stage fighting and loved nothing more than leaping about the stage with a sword in hand. On one occasion, he disarmed a co-star so aggressively that his blade flew from his grip and landed in the upper box, sending the audience scattering. But whilst Booth was fighting fake battles, at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C., Abraham Lincoln was preparing for a real one. By the time Lincoln enters the White House in March 1861, the first seven states have already seceded from the Union. The American Civil War would start a month later and be the most prominent issue throughout his presidency. Born into poverty in a log cabin in Kentucky, Lincoln was a self-educated man who practiced as a lawyer before entering the world of politics. He was a gifted orator whose eloquent and passionate speeches decrying the evils of slavery turned the heads of many of his peers in the Republican Party, who saw in him a potential leader. He secured his party's nomination for president in 1860, running as a moderate, winning the election later that year and becoming the first Republican to take the White House. He assumed the role of commander-in-chief at the most vulnerable point in his country's relatively short history, and his primary goal in those first few years was to preserve the Union. His first term would put immeasurable strain on the 52-year-old from the Bluegrass State, 
who had the unenviable task of defeating the Confederates, while simultaneously pushing to rid his country of the blight of bondage. Lincoln had a water fight, and for this he would need soldiers. He issued a call for 75,000 able-bodied men, and within 10 weeks his call had been answered, and then some. As close to 200,000 new recruits were marching to the beat of the Union drum. On the face of it, the Union forces of the North and the Southern Confederates were a mismatch. Whilst the initial seven states making up the Confederacy grew to 11 shortly after the war began, the Union massively outweighed them in terms of numbers. The North's added advantages of superior manufacturing capabilities and better railroad access further swung the balance in their favor. But what the South lacked in bodies and infrastructure, it made up for in military prowess. Under the leadership of storied generals like Stonewall Jackson and Robert E. Lee, the Confederates eked out a number of key victories in the opening months of the war that put to bed any hopes Lincoln had for a speedy resolution to the conflict. Over the course of the war, hundreds of thousands of men would lose their lives. Many of them would breathe their last breath on the battlefield, cut down by musket and cannonball fire, or impaled with the business end of a bayonet. Far more would meet an ignoble end in the field hospitals that scattered the nation, dying from diarrhea and dysentery. Each and every death weighed heavily on Lincoln's conscience. He grew thin and haggard. As the casualties mounted, a sense of doom descended on the nation, who were in mourning for their lost sons. Fed to the war machine for a conflict with no end in sight, Lincoln's woes were compounded by the death of his own 11-year-old son, Willie, who passed away in the White House a week after contracting a fever. Grief-stricken, Lincoln would retreat to his private chambers for hours at a time with only his aid for company, the pile of letters and telegrams which demanded his attention growing larger by the day. The realities of being a wartime president had been something of a rude awakening for Lincoln who preferred to react to things as they happened rather than making long-term plans. At one point writing, I claim not to have controlled events, but confess plainly that events controlled me. Frustrated with the lack of progress, he went through a revolving door of commanding generals, eventually deciding that Ulysses S. Grant, who had impressed with notable victories in Vicksburg and Chattanooga, would be the man to lead their army to victory. It was Grant's famous triumph at Gettysburg when the most important Confederate stronghold surrendered to his troops that marked the turning point of the war. It was here that Lincoln gave his Gettysburg Address, one of the most famous speeches in American history, opening with the famous lines, Four score and seven years ago, referring to the signing of the Declaration of Independence. He assured those listening that the fallen, over 50,000 at Gettysburg alone, shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. 
would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Within a year, the Confederate forces had surrendered. Whilst in the broadest of strokes, the American Civil War had been a conflict between North and South, in reality, it had left many families divided. The Booths were no exception. Though several of his siblings, including his older brother Edwin, had sided with the Union, John was proudly pro-Confederate. Like many Americans, he supported the institution of slavery believing black people to be of lesser standing than their white counterparts. He once threatened an African-American man for not removing his hat in front of him. As the war progressed, and a Southern victory began to look less and less likely, Booth felt he had to contribute something to the cause. He'd promised his mother that he wouldn't enlist in the Confederate Army. Not that Booth was champing at the bit to die in a muddy field in the first place. Instead, he hatched a plan to kidnap the President of the United States. And it wasn't as eccentric an idea as it first sounds. Lincoln didn't have a substantial security detail, often preferring to travel alone. It was a far cry from the armored motorcades and Secret Service deployment that covered the President's every move of today. And his whereabouts and movements were rarely kept secret. Booth assembled a motley crew of six co-conspirators. Amongst them was Lewis Powell, a six-foot-four preacher's son who had fought at Gettysburg. There was David Herald, a 22-year-old pharmacist's assistant, and George Atzerodt, a German-American repairman with red cheeks and even redder hair. Their intention was to intercept Lincoln on March 17, 1865, St. Patrick's Day, after he left Campbell General Hospital in northwest Washington. Lincoln would be there to watch a play. Their plan was to use him as a bargaining chip with the Union leadership to secure the release of Confederate prisoners of war. On the day in question, however, Lincoln, 
changed his plans at the last minute. Instead, attending a ceremony at the National Hotel and scuppering the kidnap attempt, Booth was frustrated beyond belief. He'd crossed paths with the president twice already in recent years. The first was during a performance Booth gave in a production of The Marble Heart at the Ford Theatre in 1863, where Lincoln had been in attendance. Two years later, Booth would end up in the crowd at Lincoln's second inauguration, and later cursed himself for not taking the opportunity to shoot him there and then. By the final weeks of the war in 1865, Booth's resentment for the president had reached new heights. The South was in tatters, its infrastructure destroyed, and an entire generation of young men lost along with it. Its future prospects didn't look much better. Lincoln's 1863 Emancipation Proclamation, which freed the 3.5 million African Americans in bondage in the Confederacy, would lead to decades of economic hardship for the South. Booth wanted more than anything to strike back at the man they were now calling the Great Emancipator. He didn't know it yet, but opportunity would soon come knocking. Just over a month later, as John Wilkes Booth sat on the front steps of the Ford Theatre reading his mail, a passing acquaintance asked him if he'd heard the news. What news? Booth inquired. He then heard how the president would be in attendance at that evening's performance of Our American Cousin. Time seemed to slow down momentarily. Booth took the information in and within seconds a plan began to form in his mind. Booth was well known at the Ford Theatre and could come and go as he pleased. So he went for a look around. And as he entered the auditorium, he could see the stagehands already preparing the presidential box, draping it with flags, and replacing one of the standard seats with a large walnut rocking chair to accommodate Lincoln's long legs. Booth made his way upstairs to the box entrance, one part of the theatre he wasn't familiar with. There, he found an anteroom which separated it from the rest of the dress circle. He ducked inside and bored a small peephole in the door to the box. From here, Booth would be able to see when the president arrived and exactly who was with him. He also left a plank of wood behind to use later. Finally, he arranged for a stagehand to have his horse ready and waiting for him at a side exit so that he could make a quick getaway. After leaving the theatre, John retired to his room at the National Hotel on Pennsylvania Avenue, where he wrote a letter detailing his motives for killing Abraham Lincoln. In it, he argues that the assassination will be for the country's betterment. He writes that he considers himself a patriot and that history will prove his actions to be just. He addresses it to the editor of the National Intelligencer, a tri-weekly paper published in Washington. At 6.30 p.m., John Booth gathers the tools he'll need for the job. Booth's weapon of choice is a Derringer, a 44 caliber single-shot pistol that measures just 5.87 inches from end to end. Whilst highly portable and easily concealed in a coat pocket, 
the choice of a single-shot weapon for an assassination attempt carries with it considerable risk. If Booth fails to hit his target, or if the gun misfires, what then? He supplements the pistol with a knife, one engraved with the words liberty and independence. He checks out of the hotel, ordering a brandy from the bar on the way out. He collects his horse and is riding down Pennsylvania Avenue when he crosses paths with an old friend by the name of John Matthews. When Booth first made plans to kidnap Lincoln, he had invited Matthews into the fold. Matthews had turned him down, believing the plot was doomed to fail, and relations between the pair had been somewhat chilly since. Booth asks him if he would deliver something on his behalf, handing him the sealed letter he had handwritten in his hotel room just hours before. Matthews, also an actor by trade, can sense that something is amiss with Booth. He's unusually pale and seems nervous somehow, on edge. He agrees to his friend's request, but before they part ways, he asks him if everything is all right. Booth assures him that all is well, before thanking him and taking off down the street. Of course, Booth isn't all right. He's plotting, planning, and if truth be told, imagining his legacy. When previously asked what his favorite role to play was, Booth had answered, Brutus, from William Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, a powerful, respected man who takes it upon himself to murder a tyrant for the good of his people. Booth sees a lot of himself in Caesar's favorite general. He's determined to make his own indelible mark on history. But he's concerned that assassinating the president isn't enough. Killing Lincoln will not revive the Confederate cause. To achieve notoriety, Booth needs to supersize his plan. So he meets with his former conspirators, Powell, Harold, and Atzerodt, tasking them with killing Vice President Andrew Johnson and Secretary of State William H. Seward. The new plan will see them carry out three simultaneous assassinations at 10.15 p.m. that night. Should they be successful, the Union leadership will be in disarray, a situation that their Confederate allies could hopefully take advantage of. Abraham Lincoln's last day is a happy one. The president eats breakfast with his son Robert, who has just returned from the front, where he's been serving on the staff of General Ulysses S. Grant. With the war now over, Lincoln encourages his eldest child to lay aside his military uniform and finish his education. At 11 a.m., he has his usual Friday cabinet meeting. Afterwards, in conversation with colleagues, Attorney General James Speed notes that Lincoln seems like a new man. Over the preceding months and years, as the weight of the war had grown heavier on his shoulders, Lincoln had neglected his appearance, allowing his whiskers to become untidy and his clothes rumpled. Today, he's fresh-faced and neatly dressed, brimming over with optimism at the prospect of an America at peace. That afternoon, during a carriage ride with Mary, the president reminisces about Springfield, Illinois, where the couple had first met. 
His cheerful disposition catches her off guard. Between the responsibilities of the Oval Office and the death of their son, the last four years have been a very difficult time for them both. But as the carriage comes to a stop and the couple disembark, Mary has the optimistic feeling that the worst is behind them, that a brighter future lies ahead. As they entered the White House, Lincoln spots a group of old friends, Illinois Governor Richard Oglesby amongst them, making to leave. He begs they stay, and the group sit and speak at length. Lincoln occasionally reading out passages from a humorous book. The Lincolns have made plans to attend the theater, a pastime the president has often relied on to distract him during the darker days of his presidency. That night, however, his mind is at rest. He wants to stay, but knows his attendance has been advertised. So not wanting to disappoint the people, he duly fulfills his obligation. John Wilkes Booth enters Ford's theatre at approximately ten past ten that night. Having spent the previous hour imbibing some liquid courage at the Star Saloon, a tavern next door. He approaches the outer entrance to the presidential box, where Lincoln's valet, Charles Forbes, is sitting. He shows his card to Forbes, who gamely steps aside for the renowned actor, assuming he has business with the president. Once inside, Booth bars the door behind him, wedging it shut with the piece of wood he'd left there earlier. Lincoln's protection for the night is a man named John Parker, a former member of the Washington police, and one of four officers assigned to Lincoln's security detail. However, as Booth approaches the door to the presidential box, the bodyguard's seat outside is empty. Parker, who had a less than spotless record as an officer to begin with, arrives three hours late for his shift that day, and once Lincoln and his party are seated, Parker decides to leave his post and move to the gallery from where he can enjoy the play. At intermission, the security guard decides to join Lincoln's valet for a drink in the very tavern where Booth was biding time earlier. It's unclear whether Parker returns to the theatre after intermission or whether he stays in the tavern for the remainder of the evening. Either way, when Booth opens the door to the presidential box, there is nothing standing between him and the president. Booth times his moment precisely, waiting for the big laugh line to hide the sound of his entrance into the box. Right on cue, the audience erupts. He steps inside. The president has his back to him, his shoulders gently rising and falling as he laughs along with the rest of the crowd. Booth raises his pistol and fires. The 44 caliber round entering the back of Lincoln's head at 400 feet per second, passing through his brain before lodging itself behind his right eye. Lincoln slumps in his chair. A cloud of gun smoke briefly envelops the box. Major Rathbone, a military veteran, leaps to his feet and makes a grab for Booth as he jumps over the railing. Booth is shorter than Rathbone, but stronger. He twists around in Rathbone's grip, coming face to face with the man, 
before pulling his knife from his coat and stabbing in the direction of Rathbone's heart. The Major has quick reflexes and manages to reposition himself just in time, his arm taking the blow meant for his vital organs. His attacker disabled. Booth turns and leaps from the box, his foot catching on the decorations as he jumps, taking his legs out from under him. He falls heavily to the stage 12 feet below, breaking his leg on impact. Though Booth, the adrenaline coursing through his veins, doesn't realize this until much later. As he staggers to his feet, he turns to the audience, raising his bloodied knife above his head. Eyewitnesses claim that Booth shouted the words, Sic Semper Tyrannis, thus always to tyrants, before turning on his heel and fleeing the theater. All of this takes place in less than 45 seconds. Amongst the audience, confusion gives way to panic. Many in the crowd initially thought the gunshot and Booth's onstage appearance was part of the play. It isn't until Mary and Clara begin screaming for help and Rathbone shouts, stop that man, that they began to realize that something is very, very wrong. Backstage, as Booth races towards the exit, he collides with Bill Withers, the theater's orchestra leader who unwittingly blocks Booth's path. Withers and Booth are friends. So when Booth snarls, let me pass or I'll kill, Withers is dumbstruck and freezes. Booth slashes at him with his knife, cutting the back of Withers' jacket, but not breaking the skin. Withers falls to the floor, and Booth disappears out of the exit, jumping onto his waiting horse and galloping off into the night. Back in the presidential box, Charles Leal, a young surgeon who is well-practiced at treating gunshot wounds from his time serving with the Union forces, examines the president. Lincoln is alive, but barely, his breathing incredibly labored. Leal locates the gunshot wound behind the president's ear, removing a blood clot to relieve the pressure on his brain. Just feet away, Mary weeps bitterly for her husband, crying out, My God, he's dead! Mary's diagnosis is premature, but Leal believes that with an injury this severe, the president will be lucky if he lasts an hour. Lincoln is in an almost comatose state, unable to speak, though he does groan if someone touches his skin or holds his hand. Meanwhile, 12 feet below, the audience are growing restless. Speaking in hushed tones in the immediate aftermath of the shooting, they soon begin smashing seats and calling for Booth's head. Dr. Leal, not wanting the president to die on the floor of a theater box, inquires if there is anywhere nearby that they could move Lincoln to. The surgeon, along with six other men, picks the president up and carries him to a boarding house directly opposite the theater. There they place him in a bed that is slightly too short for the six-foot-four commander-in-chief, laying him diagonally across it. More physicians are dispatched to the house, 461 10th Street West. The Surgeon General and Lincoln's personal doctor amongst them all agree that there is nothing to be done. The President's wound is fatal. Over the next few hours, members of Lincoln's cabinet drift in and out of the house. 
The streets outside are packed with worried onlookers, eager for news on the president's condition. At 11 p.m., Robert Lincoln arrives to see his father, joining his mother at his side. Whilst his cabinet rushes around the boarding house, making preparations for Lincoln's passing and directing the search for Booth, Abraham Lincoln continues to cling to life. He hangs on until 7.22 a.m. the following morning. As the president takes his last breath, John Wilkes Booth is 30 miles away in rural Maryland. His three-pronged assault on the Republican leadership had not gone quite as planned, however. Powell and Herald's attack on the Secretary of State, William H. Seward, had been unsuccessful. Seward was in bed at his home in downtown Washington, recovering from a carriage accident when Powell had burst into the Secretary's bedroom, stabbing him in the face and neck before fleeing the scene. However, a splint that doctors had fitted to Seward to set his jaw after his accident inadvertently saved his life, preventing Powell from severing his jugular vein. Meanwhile, Atzerod, who had rented a room directly above Vice President Andrew Johnson's at the Kirkwood House Hotel, had gotten cold feet. Instead of killing his target, he elected to get drunk at the bar downstairs. Booth, had ridden at breakneck speed out of Washington after the assassination, stopping in a tavern nine miles outside of the city, where he had stored some weaponry and supplies. There he links up with Harold. They ride to the home of Samuel A. Mudd, a doctor who splints Booth's broken leg and shelters them for the night. From there, they make their way through the Zakaya Swamp before crossing the Potomac River and taking shelter at a tobacco farm where they pose as wounded Confederate soldiers. On April 26th, 12 days after the shooting at Ford's Theatre, soldiers from the 16th New York Cavalry surround the farm, pinning Booth and Harold down in a barn. Harold gives himself up, but Booth, having no desire to meet the hangman, refuses to come out. The soldiers set the barn on fire. As Booth scrambles out the back door, he is shot in the back of the head the 12-day manhunt for the president's killer had come to an end. Atzerodt and Powell are arrested not long after, and along with Harold, are sentenced to death by hanging for their roles in the assassination. Abraham Lincoln's death is mourned on both sides of the political aisle as his coffin travels by train from Washington to his final resting place in Springfield, Illinois, it stops at several cities along the way, where hundreds of thousands of mourners turn up to pay their respects. Passing away just six weeks into his second term, his steadfast stewardship of the country during some of the darkest days in its history, and the enormous part he played in ending the tyranny of slavery, ensures his legacy as one of the finest to ever hold the office of president. The great emancipator was gone, but he would never be forgotten. And as Lincoln's Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, said at the moment of his leader's passing, now he belongs to the ages.
Crosshairs is a What's the Story original podcast series. It's presented by me, Jonathan Guy Lewis. Our music is supplied by KPM. Sound design by Tom Bruins. And this episode was written and produced by Jack O'Kennedy. If you've enjoyed listening to this episode, please give it a rating and review. There's a new episode of Crosshairs every week. And if you can't wait for that, why not check out more What's the Story content at www.whatsthestorysounds.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.